Welcome to another inspiring message from John Cameron, Senior Pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will encourage, inspire and empower you. It's absolutely awesome. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, if you're there, shout yes. yes. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the, the, the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the King who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any of the other young men your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Shadrach, Daniel, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat or water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and test your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could interpret, could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found Daniel 10 times better than all the musicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Wow. We're starting off a new series um, tonight that's entitled Sex, Love and Rock and Roll. And what we're looking at in the series is really just to consider this thought that you and I have been raised in a rock and roll generation and yet for literally hundreds of the people that are in this room tonight, we profess that our faith in Jesus Christ is more central in our lives than our culture. And it's an interesting thing to be a believer in the middle of a rock and roll generation when we are confronted with so much every day, yet we are challenged at the same time to live out our lives, not in line with what our cultural messages are, but in line with what the Word of God is teaching us. And I've chosen as my initial text in the series, and as the month goes on, we're gonna dive into some more topics and we're gonna round out the month with the Gungors who are gonna be absolutely amazing. Mark Gungor, one of the world's leading relationships teachers, is gonna be closing out the series. Jillian's got a great message on Sunday night next week that she's already written. She's told me a bit about it and I know it's gonna really bless your socks off. 
But in this, in this kickoff for this passage, I've chosen to speak from one of my favourite passages, Daniel 1, which describes for us what it was like for Daniel and his three friends to grow up in Israel, which was God's country. They were God's people, but at a time when a king by the name of Babylon, Babylon in the Bible is always a picture for us of the system of the world as opposed to the system of God's kingdom. The Tower of Babel, then Babylon, the kingdom, and all the way through, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's the source of the city, that the nation that is now referred to as Babylon. And it is always a picture for us of the kingdom of this world, the messages that you and I are being sold. Along comes Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful leader the world has ever seen. And he comes down and totally conquers the nation of Israel. He takes Daniel and his three friends and not just them, but all of the Israelite people and he scattered them throughout the countries that were under his dominion. He then selected young men and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring them close to me and for three years, I'm gonna train them in my ways. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide their food. I'm gonna provide their drink. I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose what they look at. I'm gonna give them the books they ought to read. And if he was alive today, I'm gonna choose their DVDs for them. I'm gonna give them their online material. I, I'm gonna immerse them in my in my. Academy, And at the end of three years, they will become the leaders for my generation. It's an incredible way to conquer the world. Nebuchadnezzar was not a fool. He was a very smart leader. And by doing this, he was able to establish the most powerful world empire the world has ever seen. In fact, in the book of Daniel, there is a, a description of a statue that represents for us successive kingdoms that were to come on the earth. And it describes a head that is made of gold, an upper torso of silver, a lower torso of bronze, legs of iron, and finally feet that are made of iron and clay. And then a rock that comes and smashes the statue. And that is the arrival of Jesus into this world. So we have the, the kingdom of the Babylonians, the head of the Persians, then down through to we have the legs of iron, which is the Roman Empire. And throughout successive world empires, we see their ability to be successful. And the head of gold, the most successful world empire, according to God, because He gave Daniel the prophecy, was the kingdom of Babylon. The reason why Babylon was able to be so successful was that Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose leaders and I'm gonna mix peoples and I'm gonna create in a very short space of time by allowing no one, their own cultural roots by allowing no one uh, an ethnicity or, a, or, a, or a, a belief system that is uniquely their own by immersing people in a new value system and scattering them all over the world. I'm gonna, I'm gonna establish my own pattern. And he was far more successful at dominating those he led because of his moves. I want you to understand that there hasn't been another time in human history until ours that belief systems have really been mixed and interwoven across the pages of the earth and where people groups have been intertwined and where, where we have become so open as a generation for, for somebody to sell us a message. We live in a generation that we are describing for this series as the rock and roll generation, where for many of us, we get what our values are, not so much from our parents. In fact, if you're under the age of 50, you are definitely part of the rock and roll generation. I just turned 40. I grew up listening to ACDC and Metallica. 
It's not like somehow if you're 40 years old, the series does not apply to you. We have grown up with a cultural message, with, with a bombardment. And yes, it has reached the zenith today, but we live in an age where many of the ways that you and I construct our values and what our ideals are and whether we even believe in ideals and whether there are any absolutes and whether there is even a moral code that we should line our lives up with comes from what we have been sold by the media that comes at us rather than from some kind of objective base. Most people today will get to a point in their lives where they say, hey, my mum and dad don't even understand the world that I live in and choose to find their own pathway towards truth and ideals. And I want you to understand that this is incredibly dangerous. This is a bit more like a fireside talk than a pump them up message. But I believe that God is wanting to challenge us all. Where do we get our perspective of truth from? Where do we get our ideals from? Where do we get our, our, our decision-making powers from? Because if you and I are gonna get what we think is good for us from what we see in media or on television or in magazines, then you are absolutely gonna screw your life up. Um, Andrew Walker wrote a book called Gospel, Mission and Culture. It's an old book now, but in it is a quote that I, I love where he talks about the fact that, in two quotes, first one, he talks about the fact that malls shopping malls have become the cathedrals of late modernity. He talks about the fact that 100 years ago, the most ornate structures in a society were churches, with stained glass windows and opulence and excellence wherever you could find it. And it was a building constructed for awe and wonder. The new place constructed for awe and wonder from the moment that you arrive at a shopping mall, I don't know if you realise it, but the music is chosen to inspire emotion. The scent is literally chosen. The smell that permeates it is put into the, into the uh, central air conditioning system in many shopping malls these days to give oneself a sense of a certain environment. There is no clocks in shopping malls. Purposely designed to be a place where you can gaze and wander and take your time and never feel that somehow you are in a place that you should hurry yourself out of. By the way, the only clocks in this place are on the front row too. And it's about creating an environment. And he said, malls have become the cathedrals of late maternity where people come to gaze and wonder in the sacred place, to offer homage and pay their dues to the gods of mammon. He also talks in the same book about the fact that when you and I open a magazine and we see pictures of excellence, I'm talking about here in the form of the human body, the ideals of fashion, when we look at the lives of people that we want to emulate and we see what's going on with J-Lo and we see what's going on with this person and you know, maybe J-Lo's something from another generation these days, but whoever the heck you guys look up to these days, I'm just trying to keep up, I'm 40. I can be the dad in the church now rather than the cool hip guy. But anyway, I'm trying to straddle the fence as long as I can. But you know, when we open our magazines and we just imbibe what others are doing, we are having what he describes in his book as a cultural quiet time. We're immersing ourselves in a set of values. And this makes it for a believer in Jesus a really challenging point of view to be in. Um, I was speaking with a politician recently about changes that were seeking to be made to our New Zealand law. And I said to them, I said, um, I don't wanna to talk to you about the current law. I wanna to talk to you about the last law that change that was made. What do you think of legalizing prostitution? And the reason why I chose not to discuss current legislation and, past legis and choose instead past legislation is because I think that it's very easy in a nation that's as small as ours to rush forward with change. 
and think that somehow we are the nation that has to do it first. First to give the woman the vote, first to have racial equality, first to do this, first to do that. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we flat out get it wrong. And I believe personally that prostitution is the abuse of woman and to legalise it is to legalise the abuse of woman. No girl ever grew up wanting to be a prostitute. It's not something that we legalise, it's something that we find ways around. And it's just so easy, isn't it, to live in an age, and this is a different talk tonight, but to live in an age where you and I are just so immersed in something that we just, we just take it on board. And so when we come to the fact that the Bible has in it stuff to do with sex, stuff to do with love, stuff to do with relationships, stuff to do with the way that we are to live our lives. When you read it, if you're not used to reading it, it's like, oh my gosh. Or when you hear it articulated simply and clearly, it can be like the biggest confrontation you've ever heard. And that's why I think this series is so important because you know, one of the things the Bible talks about, in fact, if you wanna find curses in the Bible, look for this, look for where people move Ancient boundary stones. Boundary stones in the Bible are spoken of as very sacred, very holy, where people marked the area, marked territory. And if you move the ancient boundary stones, it's like all of the curses of heaven come upon you because this this protected one family's ancestral Lot. It said, this will be your land forever and day. As long as there is an earth, this will be yours. And every 50 years, because of the year of Jubilee, uh, don't worry if you don't understand this, just stick with me. Then that, that property would, no matter what's going wrong in that person's life, be restored back to them. And God said, if you take that boundary stone that says, this is what's the right boundary and you move it, then the fire of heaven, you know, speaking metaphorically, the, the fire of heaven is gonna fall on your life. God takes that very seriously. And when we take right and wrong and we move the boundary stones, as we've done in our generation radically. I mean, we have pretty much, in fact, depends on what you listen to, we have altogether gotten rid of the thought, you know, um, uh, I can't remember who the artist was, but he's always the guy with the guitar, but he sings, you know, there is no wrong, there is no right, you know, there, there, there is no black, there is no white, you know, what we, and it's a, it's a thought that somehow there are no absolutes, no ideals, and whatever you find is good for you that you should do it. I just wholeheartedly reject that thought. And as controversial as that might be in this day and age, it's important for you to hear it black and white. That just because somebody says something, and let me take another step, just because something sounds good when you hear it. The Bible does not teach that wisdom is proved right by its rhetoric. If it was, then Hitler would rule the world today. Because if you're comparing the leadership gift or the charisma or even the rhetoric of Hitler versus Churchill, you have a man who has, you know, had a cigar in his mouth and pretty much was a failure until World War II. I'm mean, just saying, in the natural, God preserved him for a moment. But Hitler was the one who sounded great and mobilized millions. Listen, he's flat out wrong. And just because we hear it doesn't make it the right thing. Is anyone okay with it? You okay with this? The Bible says that wisdom is proved right by its children. And I reckon whether you believe in the Bible or not, that's just a great test of wisdom. What does it produce in the life of the person who lives according to it? Because I don't know about you, I'm looking at the guy who writes the song and says, let's, you know, let's all just, you know, you know, and you know. I mean, I've got a nine-year-old daughter now. She has access to the radio, you know, she's picking out songs and, she wants to listen to them and you know, then you know, you got all sorts of stuff that's just coming out 
through mass media. And fortunately enough, she's still naive enough to not understand most of it. But this weekend, because we've got X Factor, I have to sit down with her and explain a couple of things. And the reason why I'm committed to doing that is because I look at the lives of the people who sing the stuff. I don't want that for my life. And by the way, while we're at it, fame is not the best thing. Significance is the best thing. Significance. To aim to be famous is to aim to be shallow. That's you. That's selfish. Choose significance and you'll change the world. And as we kick off into the series, I really want this, this series to be, you know, maybe we'll, we'll hype it up or funny it up another night, but I want tonight to just be about some real home truths. And about what you and I need to understand if we're going to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. And so I've got five things I want to share with you this evening. Five simple thoughts about what I believe the Bible teaches. And I've been trying to decide how we should put them. Should I call them ancient, ancient boundary stones? Should I call them the Christian worldview? Should I call them shocking things the Bible teaches? But, but I just thought, you know, let's just, whatever we're going to call them, let's just give you five things. Five things that I think you and I must know. And if they're foundational, you need to hear them again. Number one, the first thing that I think the Bible teaches us when it talks to us about relationships is that we should pick our friends carefully. Now, if there's one thing the Bible is talking about all the way through, it's talking about the power of friendships, either to take you forward or to take you backward in life. And every young person, especially in this room, and not just every young person, because I'm old enough to have friends who have friends that are the wrong friends. And whether you're hearing this at the age of eight or whether you're hearing this at the age of 80, you and I have got to come to a point where we're thinking very carefully about the people we choose to have close to us in our world as friends. James chapter four, verse four is probably the most confrontational verse in all the Bible about friendship. This is what it says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's hatred, war with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now the Bible says that we should try and win the world. But here we've got this amazingly confrontational verse. And that's why, I'm, is it shocking truths? Is it boundary stones? You know, what is it? But it's like five little bunches to the face. But here's the first one. Here's the first punch. You've got to think carefully about the people you choose to have as your friends. It's just so easy to think that, you know, I should be friends with everybody. You should love everybody, but you shouldn't be friends with everybody. We're here to be courteous towards all, but friends with only a few. Even God, Winky prayed a few weeks ago in our church and made the amazing point that God doesn't have that many friends. Has it, has it only done it twice, Em? If it's only done it twice. Is it, is it given a bit of hassle? You know, I'm going to move the cable. And if it does it again, you jump up and do that because you are in control. And I'm just the guy who's talking, but you're doing a great job. But you know, there comes a point in your life where you start to understand about friendships that choosing one friend can also be saying no to another. You can't be friends with everybody. Even God chooses His friends carefully. That's what Winky Prattney was talking about the other night when he said in church, God names His friends. In the Bible, He says, this guy's my friend, this guy's my friend. And God's selective about people who are His friend. And the people He calls friend are those who know His heart. 
So in our lives, we need to perhaps wake up and say that there comes a moment where friendship becomes allegiance. To be a friend of the world is to be the enemy of God. It's to choose a side. And when we're choosing our friends, we need to think about the people that we're gonna let into our world. How is the journey of Abraham? When you see the journey of Abraham, here is this guy who leaves the place where he's growing up and he comes down to the land of Canaan that later became the land of Israel, the promised land for the Jewish people. And he's lived there for a whole bunch of years when I just was reading my Scriptures earlier this year and I was confronted by Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, that when it just talks about the fact that someone came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. And I've never seen it before. Abram the Hebrew. And I thought, hang on a minute. This guy come from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. He lived a little while in a place called Haran. And now they call him Abram the Hebrew. And then I'm like, okay, this is the first mention in the Scripture of this word Hebrew. So why do they call him a Hebrew? Well, I Googled it, you know, double clicked on it, did the little you know, check on it, because you can do that with your online Bible these days, and discovered that the word Hebrew in the Scripture literally means foreigner or from the land beyond. So even though Abram has lived there for over 10 years, 10 years is a long time. I don't know how long you've lived in Wellington. I've just clicked over my first decade, but I am not a foreigner to this city. I mean, I have, I'm not a Wellingtonian by birth, but I've made to. He didn't get the joke. It'll, you'll get it during X Factor. But anyway, I've made to, you know, Lara and Will were both born here in Wellington. I'm, I'm now a Wellingtonian by adoption, a hurricane supporter. It's easy because, you know, it's the blues, hurricanes. That was simple. It's like that. Nah. But I just, you know, pray for the city that you live in. I'm all on board. I'm 120%. Cut me open. It's yellow and, and black. That's what it is. But Abram, after living there for so long, they looked at him and they said, man, you are, you are a Hebrew. You are not from here. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says about Abram and about his generation that they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. What's the lesson? The lesson is just because you're in it doesn't mean you have to be of it. Just because you're around it doesn't mean you have to cling to it. Just because it's around you doesn't mean you have to take it on board. And sometimes the price tag of significance is just to not choose to throw in your lot with others. In fact, the reason why Abram was called a Hebrew is because Lot had thrown in his lot. Abram was, sorry, Lot's nephew was Lot. And Lot by name chose to throw in his lot by nature with the people that were living in the area. And he ended up being enslaved by the other kings. One of them was the king of Babylon. There's so much in it. But the thing is that when you make yourself a friend with what's going on, you can also make yourself a slave to something that comes your way. And in our lives, we do have to get to a point where we're choosing our friends carefully. Is that okay to say that tonight? The second thing I wanna to talk to you about is not only should you pick your friends carefully, but number two, you become like the people you hang around. If there's one thing the Bible teaches with just absolute continuity, it would be that in the arena of relationships, the people you hang around, you're gonna become like them. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 puts it succinctly when it says, he who walks with the wise grows wise. He who hangs out with wise people gets wiser. Here's the other side. And the companion of fools suffers harm. In other words, when we're thinking about relationships in our lives, guys, when we hang out with good people, we get better. When we hang out with bad people, we get worse. 
So if I want to think about what's my life going to be like in 10 years ahead of me, simple. Have a look at the people that I'm spending the most time with. Because the people I hang around are going to determine where I go in life. How do I know that? Because the Bible teaches it. Not only that, because I know it experientially. The reason I came to Christ, one of the reasons I came to Christ was that at the age of 17, I began to take a good hard look at the friends that I was hanging out with. And I looked at where they were going and I realised that none of them were really going anywhere that I wanted to go. I wanted to go higher. I wanted a great life. I mean, even though I was a rebellious teenager with an HQ Holden and a mullet, and you know, we were trying to push the envelope of the Lord pretty much as far as you can without, you know, getting arrested for it. And, you know, I got some great stories from that season of my life. The reality is that I was looking at my friends that are around me and realising no one is going where I want to go. I want to have a blessed life. I want to have a good life. I want to enjoy the years of my youth, but I I want a great wife. I want children. I want to own my own home. I want to enjoy my job. I want to make a difference in the world. I wanted to do something. And I looked at my friends and I realised these guys, they're not going anywhere. They're staying exactly where they are. And I thought, you know what? I need some new friends. And my, 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 my family had a guy who used to come around to the house all the time. His name was Bevan Hirangi, a Māori boy, a surfer. And he was going somewhere. He had purpose. So I'm like, I want to hang out with this guy. And so I went surfing with him and then went surfing with him after church. And he kept inviting me back to church. And as a result of it, I found Jesus. And the truth is, yeah, come on, give the Lord some praise for Bevan Hirangi. What a man. What a difference he was able to make. And the truth is that when, you, when you're looking at the people that you're hanging around with, you're looking at your future. I have, in cycling, I have three guys in the church that I call the three coaches. You know, Caleb, Andy, and Matt. Caleb McConnell, Andy Mack, and Matt, Matt Bent. And I love cycling with these guys. And the reason why is because they are so far beyond me. In fact, one year into my cycling maturity, I only realise now to be honest, how far ahead they were. When I started riding, I was just so, you know, what we call in the hurt box, just trying to just keep, you know, just trying to ride. I had no idea that riding with me wasn't even pushing them. It was like they were having a walk and I was having a sprint. You know what I'm saying? It's like a child with their parent through the airport and one's sprinting and the other's just walking. That's what it was like. But you know, the truth is the more I hang around them, the more I'm just kind of getting a little bit more of an edge and You know, this 40-year-old body takes a little bit of work to get it where I want it to go. But, you know, at the end of the day, what you hang around, you're going to become like. That's why I think every Christian believer should be thinking about where they go, about what they do, about what they watch. The Bible describes in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's arrival being like a dove that fell upon a shoulder. And I was speaking to the interns this week and I was saying to them, you know, There's no reference there that the Holy Spirit ever left. Think about where you go and who you hang around. Think about it in terms of having the dove on your shoulder. You you walk carefully when you're carrying a bird. I used to own birds when we were in Auckland and they died probably because I didn't look after them well enough. It's, It's confessional night. But you know, when you've when you got a bird on you, you don't, you don't just suddenly race in somewhere because the bird, the bird might fly off. If, if, you, if you're going into a space, your first thing is, will it startle the bird? Would it cause the bird to go? 
And in our lives, if we're going to walk with God, the Bible said Enoch walked with God. If we're, going to, if we're going to walk with the dove, we're going to think about where we're going, what we're doing, who we're hanging around with. Does the dove like this? Is the dove enjoying the direction of this conversation? Is this taking me forward? You know, if we're pulling around people who are just living with that sense of cynicism and negativity, or if they're pulling us down, or if they're ripping the church apart or, you know, ripping God apart or whatever. If or if people are just trying to push the envelope. Let's see how far we can go. Let's see, you know, oh, God's okay with that. I'm sure, oh, don't be so religious. You know, Christians can do that. I just don't want to hang around that crowd. The crowd, I'm not, I'm worried. I want to hang around. And not those saying, how far can we go to the edges, but how far can we go forward to make a difference? Get those kind of friends. We could serve in a breakfast club. We could help in Bible and schools. We could, we could look after some people. We could, we could have a lunch at our flat. Let's, let's run a prayer meeting. Let's, let's change the world. Not what movies are okay. What's, you know, how much can you get away? You know what? It's not about living that way. We're going to choose our companions very carefully. Is this okay? All right, number three. This is the king hit. You ready for it? I'm not sure I'm ready for it myself. Sex, I've got your attention now. <laughs> Sex is a spiritual covenant forming act. And perhaps the greatest challenge in all the series might be that one line. But the Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24, that for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It's literally saying that there are two people, but the moment that they unite, and it's not talking about just saying, I do, it's talking about the consummation of their marriage in sexual intercourse. And it's saying that when the two have sex together, the two become one. And this is very important because in our lives, we've been told a lie that just, you know, sex is recreational. Sex is just, you know, for fun. Sex is something that we should do with people just because we want to do it not understanding that there is ramifications to choosing to indulge in sexual immorality. Now, for anybody in this room who's got a sexual past, I'm so grateful for a God of liberty and a God of freedom and a God who can give you a second start and a third start and a 24th start. But let's not kid ourselves. God will forgive you of any sin you've ever committed, but it's a hundred times better not to do any of them. Yes, His grace is limitless, but it doesn't make it smart or intelligent. And we must realise about sex that sex is a spiritual covenant relationship forming act. It makes two people one. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Then it makes this mean, you know, if you're going to sin, it's saying do something else. This is what it literally says. If you're going to sin, do something else. This is what it says. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits or a woman are outside their body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? And you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. 
In other words, sex is different. Sex isn't a unique category. When we commit sexual immorality, we are literally unifying, we're linking. And that's why in our church, we believe that when people have had a sexual past, that one of the things they should do is freedom in Christ, you know, valiant man, and go through a process of having soul ties in their lives broken to free you from what you've done in your past because God can liberate you and give you your future. But the Bible is saying when you have sex with somebody, there is literally a unifying of the two. That's why in the book of Proverbs, it talks about all the way through the book of Proverbs, don't ever go near a prostitute because it's like you're taking your soul and uniting it with someone who's already been mixed so far and wide. And it's saying, don't do that. Keep your life pure. Keep your life smart. And what a great thing it would be for the devil to run rampant through a generation. And just like Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I'm gonna take away all your ancient boundary stones. I'm gonna remove your cultural identity. I'm gonna nullify the Word of God. And then I can really just have you for as long as I want you. We find the devil is again, I believe, attacking a generation. And saying, hey, do it. Sleep with who you want. Be with what you want. Change sexual partners like you're changing your outfit. But it has ramifications. It's just not smart. And as much as I believe in a God who loves us and has limitless grace, do ourselves a favour and from this moment forward, say, I'm not having any more sexual partners. I will only have sex with the person I marry. That's it. That's a crazy message. Come on, isn't it? But I reckon God is looking for people who are gonna choose to make that kind of call. Sex is for married people only, period. And then it's great. Amen. Number four. Fourth thing. Is this okay? You still love me? Number four. Choose carefully who you marry. If we're going to give five things that the Bible's just real blanket about, kind of like jabs to the face, then this has got to be one. You've got to choose carefully who you marry. And I think for Christians, this is perhaps more, you know, I mean, today it's like the only people who get married are Christians. You know? I mean, I mean, you know, it's like a wedding, what? You know, what's that? You know? But the truth is that marriage is God's plan. And the reason why is that, you know, it doesn't work to just sample a whole lot of things. It's not, it's not God's plan. God's plan is choose somebody and make it work. I don't believe, I do believe you can marry poorly or you can marry wisely. But I don't believe that you marry the right person or the wrong person. It's really important to get that clear. Because the right person versus the wrong person means that it kind of gets to a moment where I go, oops, I made a mistake. Like Brittany, you know, oops, I did it again. (laughs) You know, and then kind of end that one because I married the quote wrong person. No, no, you can marry smart or you can marry poorly. But then once you're married, it's what you do with it. I'm glad that applies because Gillian chose me, you know. And I, she's committed to staying with that process, you know, which is just amazing. Thank God that she believes what I'm preaching tonight. In Genesis 28.1, it says, Isaac called, uh, so Isaac called for Jacob, that's his son, and blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Haram, a harem, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there for among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And then in verse eight, it says that Esau realised how displeasing the Canaanite woman were to his father Isaac. 
In other words, choose wisely your spouse. We've got to think about this because when we're thinking about who we're going to marry, we're making second only to our commitment to follow Jesus the biggest decision of our lives. It's not something you should rush into. You should never marry because of need. Never marry a project. I can save them if I, if I marry them. You want to marry a partner. They've got to, they've got to push you. The reason why I knew I was marrying the wrong, right person, and by the way, from the moment that I married, the, from the moment I met Gillian, don't ever tell her I made that slip. From the moment that I met Gillian, I honestly have been head over heels in love with her. But the reason I knew that I wanted to marry her was when I drove down her parents' driveway, got out of my high ace van that I was driving, looked through her parents' window and saw my wife doing what she does best, praying. And still today, when she gets in the presence of God, she scares me. She scares me. If you interns who are here, it's, it's intern retreat. She just scares me. She's so bold. She just follows God. She just does crazy stuff. But I loved that because it was a woman who was on fire for Jesus. And I knew that, that even though I have a great gift of leadership, always have had, I knew that I was marrying someone who wasn't going to be an appendage, but someone who was just going to stir me. And I wouldn't be the man I am today if I hadn't chosen to marry her. And in our lives, two are going to be better than one. Listen, two should be better than one. I would choose who you're going to marry real careful. It's the biggest decision of your life. If you know you were the loser, walk away. Breaking up while you're dating is okay. It's a smart thing sometimes. You can break off an engagement even. God's fine with that. But once you marry, you're with them for the rest of your life. So make sure that that's a decision that you think through. Super careful. It's the big one. Number five, don't covet your neighbor's wife. And I've chosen this one because if there's one thing that our world is full today, it is with people who, uh, 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 television, television is so gripping when there is somebody else coming in the way of an existing relationship. It's like if we can put that into Grey's Anatomy, or I've got to be honest, I've been fasting TV all year. I couldn't even tell you what the, the hot miniseries are or the hot drama shows are these days. But, you know, whatever one it is, you, you know the one, you know. In fact, on the count of three, tell me what it is. One, two, three. All I heard was Levi shouting, my kitchen rules. Would you stop that? You're always the joker. I'm trying to, it's Jesus here, what? Whatever one you just threw out, whatever one you just threw out, you know, it's always about, you know, whether it's Shortland Street or whatever, it's always going to be this one relationship and then, oh man, and it's a great source for a movie because over here we've got a marriage or relationship and then somebody else coming in from the side. And everything is about the fact that true love is so much more important than existing relationships. And that's why it's so very clear that we understand that the Bible says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment, right? You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. That is the 10th commandment. In other words, it's not only in there, it's like in there, in there. Right back to the very core of what all of God's law is. Number 10. Number one, don't have any other gods before me. Number 10. We always say you shall not covet. Finish it. Your neighbour's wife. 
In other words, if somebody's in an existing relationship, stay the heck away from it. Oh, but we couldn't really help it. You know, we couldn't really help it. What I, of course you can help it. If I put a gold ring in front of you, would you have to steal it? You know, if I put a knife in your hand, would you have to kill them? I mean, where does it stop? It only stops at the place we say the boundary is. Doesn't it? Because now it's like, yeah, yeah, that's okay, that's okay. Yeah, sure, sure. And we've moved the boundary stone. It's not okay. Stay away from a committed relationship. When you find one, stay the heck away. You don't have to go there. And I think this generation has got to get it so clear. You just got to, you got to stay in a committed relationship and you got to walk away from somebody else's committed relationship. And listen, for the, the dating teenagers in our church, stay away from those as well. It doesn't matter if you don't think that, you know, you're better than he is for that girl. I don't care. Stay away. And let God have a total sovereignty over it. If, if he you are and pray for her, she breaks up with him, then give it three or four months, let her, let her get over it. Then maybe you can make your move. And if you don't like it, we have some men selectively around this church that'll kind of give you a little bit of a smackdown for that. It's a bit rude. Why do you do that? Because one day my daughter's going to grow up in this church. I've just set everything up already. <laughs> and because this is our church, if you don't like it, go to another one. Because my daughters go to this one. No, I'm just kidding. And in our lives, in our lives, we've got to make sure that we are living according to God's plan. I really pray this series is going to help some people. We're going to move on to some other topics as the month goes on. But this tonight, I wanted to kick us off and to say to you guys, let's make sure that we are living within God's plan. Never forget the heritage where you've come from. Never forget that this book is the rule of your law. Don't ever let yourself be immersed in a culture that tells you something different from what this book tells you, because this is the pathway to life. It's the pathway to hope. It's the ticket to freedom. It'll give you a blessed life and a prosperous future. Come on, if you believe that Jesus is alive, can you stand to your feet with me tonight and give the Lord some praise all over this room? If you would like to find out more about Arise Church and John Cameron, go to arise.org.nz or follow them on Twitter at John Allen Cameron and at Arise Church.